Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, have you had enough rain or you want more? I tell you what, I'm about as soggy as it can get. I'm about had it with this stuff. Plus, it's interfering with my golf game. Right, Arnold? Yeah, there you go. Let me ask you this question as we begin this morning. If I were to, if you had a, um, I guess you call it a scale, on what end of the scale there would be, this is talking about you personally now and your Christian faith. On one end of the scale is hiding in the shadows. Um, this will be the person that's afraid to say anything, afraid to speak up. Very few people know you're even a believer. Um, you might, you know, you talk talk at all, you know, at church and things like that, but I'm talking about out in the community, at school, at work, that sort of thing. You're still kind of hiding in the shadows and nobody knows who you are as a believer. You're not very bold. You don't ever tell anybody about the Lord, and you very rarely speak up to talk about what's right and wrong or what the Bible says on an issue. So that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the scale would be a person that we would define as being bold and courageous and ready to share their faith and always speaking up in love uh, concerning what is right and wrong and what the Bible teaches about certain things. That would be the other end of the spectrum. Now, the question is this, where would you put yourself on that scale? You evaluate yourself. Some of you would probably say, I'm back here more uh, kind of like, you know, hiding out. I'm back in the shadows. Nobody really knows that much about me as far as my faith, and I rarely ever say anything. Others of you may say, I'm somewhere in the middle. Some of you would say, well, I'm way over there. I don't mind speaking up and sharing my faith and so forth. Where are you? Now, you know, back when I became a believer, I've told you these stories before, but I like to go back to them occasionally. There was a young man that uh, had gone to Bible college who came home. He was a couple of years older than I was. I call him a young man because we were just young back then. And um, his name was Gail, and Gail really challenged me to be bold in my faith, to witness, to share your faith and not be afraid now, that was hard for me because I'd never grown up doing that, and I was, in, even in school, sort of an introvert. So it was hard for me to do that. Plus, I was afraid of the same things that you and I are afraid of. But we did. Gail challenged me, and we worked together, and we did some things and studied the Bible together, things like that, and eventually led to me to go to Bible college in Florida. I went down there and graduated from there, but while I was there, we did things like door-to-door uh, witnessing ministry as part of the program. We'd go knock on the doors of Catholics and Jews, which were a large part of the population down there. And we would share our faith and learn how to talk to people and that sort of thing. I can remember going to a detention center for youth, for teens, and talking to them about the Lord. That was a real challenge, let me tell you. Uh, I'd rather talk to adults, I think, but at any rate, it was a challenge. It challenged your faith and, and your abilities and what you sh- you know should say and what you shouldn't say, things like that. Back in the early 80s then, after I graduated from there, I came out here to Dallas to go to seminary. And while in seminary, I worked at a church there in DeSoto, and we got involved in prison ministry, and that was another challenge. Um, those of you that have been on prison ministry trips with us here at this church, you know what that's like. But we learned even more how to be bold, how to talk to people of different races, different religions, um, just different places in life, uh, things like that. 
And I learned something over all of these years, from the time that I go back to the 70s when I was back in Charlotte and my friend Gail and I, and he was challenging me. I can, I've learned something over the years, and that is this, that the more I stepped out in faith and took a risk and acted boldly, did things that were out of my comfort zone, things that I wouldn't normally do, then the bolder I became. It was really odd. Because it was almost as if God's saying, you see, it's not that hard. And you need to speak up and you need to say things. And you become more confident and more your faith increases and you become uh, get to a point where you can trust the Lord to take you through those times and to show you those things and to go before you and prepare people's hearts and that sort of thing. And guys, let me tell you, if there was ever a time when we needed to be bold, it's now. Because you look around this nation and you see a lot of things happening in the churches and outside of the churches. Moral standards are changing quickly. Political correctness is going to shut you up if you have a differing opinion on about anything. And it seems like God and spiritual things have become more and more unimportant and irrelevant to people. It doesn't seem to matter anymore to people about what the Bible teaches. We have we've got momentum, we're going this direction, and we're going as far, as far away from God as we can. And the question then arises, well, where's the church? Where are we as believers in Christ? Do we ever speak up? Do we ever say anything? Now, I'm talking about in your own community, in your own families, in your own schools. I'm not talking about going on TV or something like that. I'm just talking about speaking up in the circles that, in which you move and in which you live. We can't be timid, we can't be shy, we can't be silent. Because now's the time for each and every one of us to be bold and to be vocal. Some of you will. Some of you will pick up the challenge and others won't. You'll still remain over here in the shadows. And trying to be a secret agent Christian, and that's not working very well for you, I can guarantee you that. Others will be challenged to move into this area of boldness and speaking up. And that is where I'm really going with this today. The title of this is Coming Out of the Shadows. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. At the end of everything, I want, to, want you to simply be challenged to step up, to get out of that comfort zone that you've gotten into, to, to begin to see the importance and to realize just what you and I need to be doing as Christians, and what God has called us to. And today what we're going to be doing is this. I want to show you two biblical examples of men that were over here in the shadows and they moved into the area of being bold. We're going to talk about what it took to get there and what it's going to take for you to get there. Sometimes you're going to lose something. In these men's lives, there was a, there was a lot to lose. They waited to the very end to do something, but they finally did. I want you to learn as we go through this today that it's never too late. And that if you find yourself over here more toward this end of the spectrum and you're hiding out and you're not bold, I want you to understand that no matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been over there hiding out, that it is never too late to change. And that's really what I'm asking of you today. I'm asking of you to make a commitment that you're going to make some changes in little steps. You know, we're not talking about something big, 
but in little steps to start moving into the area of being more bold in your faith and to share and to be able to speak up and talk about what's right and wrong without being ashamed. Let me give you the context of this passage we're going to be looking at today. It, has, it takes place in one day, the crucifixion of Christ. And in that one day, many things happen, but there's something that takes place in the lives of these two men. And they come out of the shadows that day. These two men are Nicodemus, which I'm sure you're familiar with. We've talked about him and John before in the, in the Gospel of John. But the other man is Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is probably the one some of you haven't heard of. But I want to talk about these two men and how their lives came together, how they worked together, and what that is an example of for you and me. And let's learn from this, okay, as we look at this today. I want to begin by talking about who these men were, because it's important that you understand that. It goes to the whole heart of what we're talking about here today. So let me take you to, first of all, John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read these two verses, but look at all of the information that we get on this one particular man, Nicodemus. There's not a lot in the Bible about either one of these men, just a few verses. But in those verses, you begin to learn who these guys were. Let's look at this in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, all right, you remember the story of that. When he comes to Jesus by night, notice what it does tell us in the passage. Number one, he's a Pharisee. Pharisees were very religious, very self-righteous, very judgmental. That's just the nature of the beast. That's who they were. They were the biggest problem that Jesus ever had encountered in all of his ministry. But there they were, and this man is a Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. And it says here that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. What is that? Well, that's the Sanhedrin in the New Testament, or in the Bible. And the Sanhedrin was simply this. It was a group of 71 men. 71 men made up of high priests, elders, and teachers in Israel. And those 71 men were the Jewish ruling council for the entire nation of Israel. What they said went. And the, the decisions that they made concerning the religious life of, of Israel, that's what it was. Now keep in mind, okay, Israel is under Roman rule. Roman, Rome has conquered the world. But Israel still retains her religion. And her religion had become more introverted and more set in its ways and stricter and all of these things. But they are, the Sanhedrin rule the roost. Now let's go back and look at this passage in verse 2. It says that he came to Jesus by night. Why? Well, because he was scared to come in the daytime. He had a lot to lose. He's a high-ranking official in the Jewish government, religious group, you will, if you will. And he had a lot to lose, so he came by night. And here's what he said. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Now, who's the we? Don't miss this, okay? Who's the we? Well, it doesn't tell us, but we can only guess that he's saying basically to Christ that myself and others among the Sanhedrin 
have come to the conclusion that you must be from God. Now, that is a bold statement for these men. Now, I don't know who else. It doesn't tell us who else in the Sanhedrin except for one other man, and that is Joseph of Arimathea. And here's what it says about him. We go back into the book of Mark now. Mark chapter 15, verse 43. Watch what he says. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, here's what we learn about this guy. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, just like Nicodemus, a prominent member. He was very wealthy. We know that. He was very prominent, very well-known, very influential. And it says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Do you know what that means? That he was waiting for the Messiah. Now, see, he didn't understand a lot, but he was waiting for the Messiah. And when Christ came along, just like Nicodemus, he began to think, wait a minute, this must be him. Could this be him? And you're going to find out, and we don't know when it took place. We really don't. But both of these men became believers. Both became disciples of Christ. And both lived in the shadows for a couple of years. The ministry of Christ was three and a half years long. That's all the ministry lasted. We know that for several years at least, these men hid in the shadows. Now what we see from the little bit that we can see about their lives is that there was beginning to be glimmers of hope for them. They were beginning to move from over here into the shadows. They were beginning to move toward becoming bolder in what they said and did. Now, let me give you an example. There was a situation in which the, the Sanhedrin had met because of the ministry of Christ and all that he was doing, and they were determined to put an end to it. They send out the royal guard, or, or the, the temple guard, I should say, and they said, go get him and bring him here, and we're going to put an, an end to this. So they go out, and then they come back, and they say, wait a minute, we can't bring him in because nobody has ever spoken like this before, and the people, the crowds, they just love him, and we can't bring him in. And the leaders of the Sanhedrin were furious. They said, nobody in this group of leadership in Israel believes in him, which they thought was true, but it wasn't. He said, and they said to the guards, have you two become Galileans now? In other words, have you become followers of his? And then this is when Nicodemus steps up and says something. He doesn't, you know, he just sort of, does, he's coming out of his shell. Now watch. In John 7, verses 50 through 51, here's what he says. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, talking about the Sanhedrin, he asked, he said, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Now, he's the only one that stood up and even contradicted what the leaders were saying, but yet it is a glimmer. He's asking a question. Wait a minute. Are you really going to bring him in and try him and all of this without knowing what's going on? It's interesting because the high priest turns to him at the end of that conversation. And he says, have you too become a Galilean? In other words, have you too believed? Well, he didn't really know, but yeah, he had. Nicodemus had. But now here's the, here's the passage that I want to take you to, okay? Because like I said, there's not that many verses that deal with these two guys. 
But this one is so profound. You've got to see this, okay? This is after Jesus had died. He's hanging on the cross. In John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, here's what it says. Later, talking about later that day, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, the Roman governor, or what provincial magistrate or whatever, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. All right, now guys, don't miss this, okay? Because John is telling you something here. He said, here hung Jesus on the cross and everybody has gone away or is in the process of leaving. When this guy goes and he says to Pilate, let me have the body. So here he is a member of the Sanhedrin the ruling body of Israel, going and taking down the body of Jesus Christ, the heretic, the blasphemer, and all the things that he'd been accused of. says that he is a, was a disciple of Jesus. We don't know when that began. We're not told. But it was secret because he feared the Jewish leaders. Now the story goes on. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Now, guys, look at this, okay? Because here's, here's two men hiding over here in the shadows for several years, and all of a sudden they've got to the point where they're thinking to themselves, that's enough. And rather than letting his body hang on the cross... These two men boldly stepped up in front of everybody and said, let us take him down and let us prepare his body. And Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of expensive spices in which to uh, put along the body, within the wraps of the body. In verse 40 it says this, Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. So they wrap him, they take care of him, they were very tender, very caring with the body of Christ. What did they know? Did they understand about a resurrection? I don't think so. I can't say for sure. The disciples struggled with that one, if you'll remember. So chances are they didn't. But nonetheless, they knew that this was special and they wanted to take care of his body. In verse 41, it says, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, you look in another passage of Scripture, you're going to find that this was actually the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. It was his personal tomb. He was very wealthy. He had a nice tomb, had it prepared and ready for his body. But on that day, he said, no, put him in mine. Now, guys, this is probably one of the boldest acts of somebody in the Bible who was way over here in the shadows and finally decides they're going to get serious about their faith and they're going to let people know it and they're going to let people see it and they're going to do something that is right. And now they're moved all of a sudden from here all the way over to here. And now everybody knows. Everybody's going to know who they are, what they believe, and who they follow. 
Life would never be the same for these two men again. Both of these men, the Bible tells us, took care of the body. Now, I don't know who else was there. The text doesn't tell us. There could have been some other women or somebody helping. I don't know. But the text tells us this. These two men, members of the Sanhedrin, took the body of Christ, wrapped it, prepared it, and put it in the tomb. Now, you've got to understand the significance of this because this is Passover. The day of preparation was the day before. At 6 o'clock that evening, Passover began. They only have a matter of hours to get this taken care of. And once they touch the body, they are considered unclean and cannot participate in Passover because they're now unclean. But yet that didn't matter to them. They were determined to take care of Jesus. Think what they must have been thinking. Here we are, all of these years now, we've let him down. All of these years we believed and followed him, but we never let anybody know. Now they've killed him, and here at the end, I'm going to step up and finally step up and let the people see just what I believe and just who I really follow. Now, the risks, oh my gosh. They could be put out of the synagogue and never allowed back in. They could lose their livelihood. They could lose their friends, their family, or they could even be put in jail like a lot of the other disciples were being threatened to, to do. A lot of things could have happened to them and we really don't know whatever did. But now here's what I want to do because we don't have any other text to talk about concerning them. Let's move from this story of these two men and let's pull it into today. Let's talk about you and me, okay? Let's talk about you and me and how it is that we're going to get from over here where we are living in the shadows and reluctant to speak up to moving more toward a life of being bold and being used by God. Let's talk about that. First of all, let me ask you this question. What do you think the number one reason is for you and me, or anybody for that matter, living in the shadows? Why do you think that we want or do live in the shadows when we should be stepping out in faith? What is it? What prevents us from stepping out? We're afraid. We're afraid. It's fear. It was that with Nicodemus and and Joseph, and nothing has changed in all of these years and centuries. We're still afraid. We're afraid of losing friends. We're afraid of being laughed at. We're afraid even of making a mistake. See, over the years of ministry, I talk to people and I ask them, I say, why are you reluctant to stand up. Well, pastor, more than anything, I'm afraid that I'll just blow it. I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong, or I'm I'm afraid I'm going to be asked a question I can't answer, and I'll be made to look like a fool and to bring shame to the Lord and all of this stuff. And and I've, I've told you time and time again that the only way that you can fail is by not ever stepping up. Because no matter what you bring, whatever gifts, abilities, experiences, whatever you bring in this, this step of boldness that you take, God takes that and uses it. My gosh, nobody has the power to do anything. I don't have the power to bring somebody to Christ. I don't have any power to change anybody's life, and neither do you. But when you and I take a step of faith in boldness, we proclaim the truth 
then the Spirit of God takes that and uses it, and God does what God does. How can you, how can you fail? Now, granted, some of us aren't as prepared as we need to be, and we need to work on that. That's true. We need to put more of our abilities and experiences. We need to have more of that to put into the hands of God. But, folks, you can't fail. You have nothing to be afraid of. It's time to come out of the shadows. It's time to speak up. What are the reasons why we need to be bold? Let's talk about that for a moment. Say, Pastor, you know what? I've been pretty comfortable over here all of these years. <laughs> Nobody bothers me. I don't create waves. I don't get in trouble. I don't say anything that causes anybody to get mad at me. I'm comfortable here. And I come to church, and I'm part of the church, but you know what? I'd rather be over here, and, and I'm standing here telling you that you can't be. So why? What are some reasons why you and I need to move that way into the area of boldness? Two reasons that I've written down. There's probably many that you can probably think of, but just listen to these two, okay? Number one is this. Because God called you to this. He called you to this. He called you to live over here, not back here in the shadows. From the time that he saved your soul, it was with the intent that you would live life over here. I want to share a verse with you, but before I do, I want to set the, the stage for this. This is a passage that I've talked to you or used with you. Uh, we went through the book of Second Corinthians years ago, and this passage comes out of there, and I know we talked about this then. But before we get to it, let me set the stage, okay? In history... Whenever a Roman emperor or a Roman general, whoever took the army out, whenever he had a great victory, he would come back into Rome and they'd make a big deal out of it. It was called his, his uh, processional. You know, he would come marching down through the main street of Rome. And here's what it looked like. And this is, you're going to need to know this, okay? The emperor or the general, whoever it was, would be on a white horse leading the processional. Following him would be his generals, those under him. Following them would be the armies. And they would come in in droves, marching in, in everybody yelling and screaming. It was like a ticker tape parade, if you will. Following them would be the slaves, the people that they had just conquered, those that had been defeated. Whatever nation they had conquered, they would bring and they would parade the slaves through town and everybody would, you know, boo or whatever, or they'd yell for victory and whatever. Now, the problem was this. Part of the problem was that the slaves would come through. They would be sweaty and stinky and smelly. They'd been marching for weeks. They would have defecated on themselves, urine, all of these stenchy smells that you would think would be there, the smell of rotting flesh because of wounds that had not been taken care of. All of this is being marched through the city of Rome. So what they did was this. They had priests or whoever was available with censers of incense that would walk along beside them. The crowd is over here. The slaves are over here. And in the middle, you've got these guys carrying incense in order to cover up the stench because foul odors kind of mess up the whole 
uh, the whole feeling of celebration. And so that's what they would do. And it was called the processional or the, the victory march, whatever. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Now pay close attention to this, okay? He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Now you got to picture this, okay? Paul's saying, do you know that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that God in essence conquered you? The love of God and the grace of God conquered you. That hard heart, those walls of defense that you had around you, God just knocked them down and saved you and blessed you. And then God took you and he's marching you through the world. He's leading the way and he's taking you into the world and you become a sweet-smelling aroma to everyone that you come in contact with. He says if the person is a believer or becoming a believer and is, is questioning, he said, you're a sweet-smelling aroma to that person. If the person is, is lost and is never going to put their faith in Christ and they're doomed, you are still a sweet-smelling aroma to that person. What is he saying? He says, look, when God saved you, here's what he had in mind. I'm going to march you into the world as my witnesses, and you are going to be this to the world. And you're going to look sweet. You're going to smell sweet. You're going to talk about me, and that's going to be sweet. You're going to stand up for right and wrong and what's good and what isn't. That's going to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the whole world. That's what God called you to. You see, that's what God had in mind when he saved you. And here's what we've done. We hide over here in the shadows. Because you see, it's safe over there. We don't have to do anything. And God says, wait a minute. That's not the reason I saved you. I want you to be my witness to every person. Whatever their need is, you take me to them. That's a tall order. And I'll tell you right now what it's going to take. It's going to take a whole lot of boldness, a whole lot of courage, a whole lot of faith. Because that goes against everything that we as human beings want to do. Because we tend to want to hide. And if it's difficult, if it's dangerous, if it's going to stretch me, don't want it. Then we wonder why we just don't seem as close to the Lord as we used to be. Maybe it's because you're still hiding in the shadows. Here's the second reason why you need to be bold. And that is this, and I just touched on it, okay? That is that you can't grow spiritually without being bold. You can't. You can't grow spiritually over here in the shadows. 
And here's the reason why. Because if you stay over in the shadows, you will never see or experience the power of God in your life, that He can use you. You'll always think that He can't. You will never ever be a part of changing somebody's life if you stay in the shadows. You will never ever see your faith grow if you stay in the shadows because nothing will ever be tested. You'll never be put out on a branch where you have to swing loosely, so to speak, without any knowledge of what's going to happen tomorrow. You'll never be put in dangerous situations if you stay in the shadows. And here you've got these two guys. After all these years, they step up, come out of the shadows, and I bet their lives changed. Maybe in some bad ways, but I'll guarantee you they changed in some good ways. And guys, that's what you and I have to do. God never meant for you to be there. God meant for you to be over here. Now, I don't b- believe or think uh, that you're going to move from here to there overnight. And I don't think that God intended it to be that way anyway. But here's what I do believe. I believe that if we're going to change, if we're going to move, then here's what we're going to have to do. Now watch. Number one, your love for the Lord has to be stronger than your fear. Your love for the Lord has to be stronger than your fear. Now see, this is the whole crux of the issue right here. Do I love Him enough that I'm going to take a risk that I might lose a friend? Am I going to take a risk that I might put my life in danger? Am I going to uh, take a risk that I might fumble the ball or stumble or say something I shouldn't or look like a fool? Do I love him that much that I would do that? You know, when I started out in ministry, let me tell you something. You go from being in seminary and taking on a responsibility of a church and you don't know beans from bees feet about what in the world you're doing. But boy, I'm telling you what, you draw close to the Lord real fast. And you learn that because of your love for Him and your devotion to Him that you will endure things you never thought you would endure. You would do things you never thought you would do. You would go places you never thought you would go. And I'm telling you from experience that if your love for Jesus Christ is not stronger than your fear of what people are going to say and think, then you're probably going to stay there in the shadows. But if you begin to understand what the Bible teaches about how much God loves you, and you begin to love Him back in ways that you can't even begin to imagine, all of a sudden, boldness kicks in. Now watch this verse. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. And here's what Paul said. Very short verse. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What's he saying? He said, because I know where I'm going and I know what he's done for me and I love him with all my heart, why would I not be bold? Why would I not have the courage? Why would I not take those risks? So your love for the Lord has to be stronger than your fear. Here's number two. You need to remember that growth is a process. And this is what I was talking about a while ago. You need to not become discouraged when things don't go as quickly as you think it should go. 
um, you'll stumble and you'll fall and you'll make mistakes. That's what I tell people whenever they are trying a new ministry or going to a prison or whatever. You're going to make mistakes. That's not the issue. So please don't, don't think that all of a sudden you go from A to B overnight. You don't. It's a process. And you will step up and you'll get knocked down. Well, you get back up and keep going. And you learn something. Don't be discouraged. That's my challenge here, okay? Don't be discouraged. You take one step at a time. Here's the third and final thing that I want to share with you on how do you go about changing, and that is this. That when God says to speak up, don't you hesitate. See, here's what happens. You have within you the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is always working on you, and the Spirit of God comes over here to you, and you're in the shadows, and the Spirit of God says to you, you need to speak to this person, or you need to do this ministry, or you need to go here, you need to do this. You know it in your heart because the Spirit of God is convicting you. But here's what we think. We'll say, now wait a minute, I don't want to go. I'll make all kinds of excuses and I'll hesitate. And what happens is I'm quenching the spirit, the Bible says, and pretty soon that feeling passes. Because it's almost as if the Spirit of God says, okay, basically I'll find somebody else. Now if that's true and that's the way it works, then the best thing that I can do as a Christian is that when the Spirit of God says for me to move, I better not hesitate. I better step up. And here's what I believe the Bible talks about when it talks about walking in the Spirit. Here I am in the shadows and God's you know, calling me and hoaxing me and get out of there. Come here. Do this. And I'll take a chance. I'll take a risk and I'll step out and I'll do it. And all of a sudden, I begin to understand that God can use me. And I begin to understand what it feels like to walk with Him. And I become bolder. Not over there yet, but at least I'm heading in the right direction, right? One step at a time, when the Spirit of God speaks, I move. And one day, one day, years later perhaps, like Joseph and Nicodemus, you take the body of Christ down off the cross. You're exposed as a believer. People know who you are. You think to yourself, what have we done? And then you'll think, we stood up. That's what we did. We stood up. That's the happiest place you'll ever be. Stand up. Come out of the shadows, Christian. Let God use you. Let God use you to affect the lives of other people. It's never too late, but God's waiting on you. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith in Christ, listen to this verse, my last verse, and I'm sitting down, okay? Here it is. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says that he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You know what the verse says? It says that God saved us not because you did good things, but it's simply because of his mercy, his grace. God 
decided to save you. God provided the means for that. And all God said was, will you believe me? Will you trust me? And it says that when we put our faith in Christ, the Bible teaches us that we are born again, the Bible says. This is how he saved you through the washing of rebirth. When I put my faith in Christ, I am born again and I'm cleansed. And then the Spirit of God lives within me and renews my spirit. He brings me to life. You want that? It's very simple. You just trust him. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that basically is the invitation that God has given to all of us. If you've never done that, to call upon him. Trust him. Believe. Be saved. Do that right now. Right there where you sit. Just call upon the name of the Lord. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Lord, I can tell you that. I've done things wrong. But Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. And I'm trusting that. I'm trusting that. His payment to save me. That's faith. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, I pray, Lord, that if there's one that does not know you as their Savior, that today they would come to faith. And Father, for all of us as your children who have come to you by faith, may we not be ashamed. May we move out of the shadows and into a place where you want us to be, of being your fragrance, your witness into the world around us. Father, help us to be that person. Father, it may take baby steps and it may take time for us to move to that position in life. But Father, move us. Move us. And may we have the courage and the commitment and the faith to step out one step at a time. In Jesus' name we pray.